We're continuing in Psalm 22. We are uh, exegeting particular or chosen psalms. We're not going through all of them. It would take close to 400 sermons to preach through the 150 psalms, but we're selecting some at least for now, and um, it has been a blessing to my heart and I hope to yours. So I'll begin by reading Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5, the verses that we've covered thus far. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I call by day, and you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you, they cried out and were granted escape. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, now as we enter into the exposition of your word, God, we pray that you would be glorified through the words that are conveyed this morning. God, I pray that the authority would come from your word and not from any opinion that I might have of my own. I pray that we would continue to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be sanctified through the preaching of your word and through all that comes into our lives. God bless each one that's here this morning. I pray that you would do a work in us that is supernatural, that is from you, and that you receive all the glory for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this morning that what we have in this psalm is a prophecy about the sin-bearing death of the Messiah. Yes, in part, it is fulfilled in David, but predominantly this is a psalm fulfilled in the Messiah, in his crucifixion. So a thousand years before his crucifixion, David spoke. David the prophet spoke for God to reveal the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent. He reveals in detail the events that occurred a thousand years into the future when the fullness of time had come, when God sent forth his son born of a woman, the very sin bearer to satisfy God's justice for his people to pay his sin debt. Understand that God in Scripture prophesied many events. All of these are events that he decreed before the foundation of the world. And understand as well that he always fulfills every prophecy, everything that he's promised. There are hundreds of these prophecies pertaining to the first coming of Christ, and many of these relate to his death his death, burial, and resurrection. These prophecies verify, they authenticate, they prove that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, the God-man, the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. We have seen in these first five five verses the curse upon Christ. 
that is his spiritual suffering, and that Jesus was separated from the Father. The Father turned his face away. In other words, the light of his countenance, his blessings were removed from Christ as our sins, the sins of his people were placed upon him because God cannot look upon sin. And we saw that last week in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Abandoned by God, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prayed for help, but the father did not answer. There was no rescue, only silence. He was left hanging on the cross to bear the sins of the world. Jesus was abandoned by the father as he bore our sins. When our sins were transferred to him, the father turned his face away as it were. And Peter explains what took place in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. You see, it's only through the substitutionary death of Christ that we can come to God through faith. It's only through the substitutionary death of Christ that our sins are forgiven that our relationship with God is restored, that we have communion with him as his dear children. In verses 1 and 2, we see this divine separation. Yet in verse 3, we see the suffering servant, the Son of God, and what he declares. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. While God had forsaken his son, the son still knew that God is holy. This separation in other words does not demonstrate any injustice with god rather it proclaims his holiness remember the song of moses from last week exodus 15:11 that that song speaks of god's holiness and moses says who is like you o lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. You see, God is above and beyond all creation. That's holiness. He's not like us. His holiness speaks of his otherness. He's not like his creation. He is above and beyond it. And there is no sin, no fault, no injustice in him. Therefore, he is faithful because he is holy. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus continues by demonstrating God's holiness through the faithfulness of Israel. Over and over, God had delivered them from their enemies. Over and over, God had kept his promises to his people, even when they were unfaithful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul quotes a trustworthy statement, as he calls it, that ends this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. See, God is holy and righteous in all his ways. Therefore, he is faithful to his people. He is faithful to keep his promises. But then in verse 8, Jesus makes a stark contrast between the nation of Israel and himself. While God is faithful and has been faithful to his people, while he has rescued them and never allowed them to be put to shame, in verse 6, Jesus cries out, but I am a worm and not a man. While he rescued them, excuse me, read the wrong place. 
Let's start again. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people, speaking of his own people. Here Jesus refers to himself as only a worm, using a figure of speech, a term of derision. It describes what he says in the remainder of the verse. Basically, I am less than a man. I'm not a man or less than a man, a reproach of men, despised by my own people. While the writer of Hebrews states that Christ was made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation, yet here, hanging on a cross, Jesus portrays himself as much lower than man, even as a lowly worm, a creature regarded as nothing. It speaks of his helplessness and his despised condition by the people. On the cross, he did not even appear as a man. He had been tortured and abused, beaten, whipped. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 52, 14, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus is saying, Look at my state hanging on the cross between heaven and earth. Not only am I a little lower than the angels, I am lower than man hanging on the cross. I'm much lower. I am but a worm, helpless and despised by the people, considered as nothing by my own people, the Jews. He continues to describe his despised state in verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, because he delights in him. There he hang, dying for the sins of the world. The very same people who said just days earlier, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They now mock him. They smack their lip, literally open the lip. It's opening the lip to mock. The idea of here is really words or scorn bursting through the lips. They wag their head. It's the behavior of derision. It shows contempt. We could say with the smacking of the lips and the wagging of the head that they were revealing their evil hearts, their rebellion against the saving Messiah. Here they identify themselves with the people of Psalm 2, don't they? The unregenerate, who stand against the Lord and his anointed. The unsaved who take counsel against the Lord, who stand with their rulers in derision. Yet these are those whom the Lord mocks back in Psalm 2 and says, but as for me, I mean, they may mock me, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree, the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. The Messiah is speaking here. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We remember that, I'm sure, from Psalm 2. We are seeing here in Psalm 22 the future fulfillment of Psalm 2 in prophecy. You see here in Psalm 22, the mocking people say, let God deliver him because he delights in him. 
But that's exactly what God had decreed and proclaimed in Psalm 2, to birth his son, his anointed, out of the grave. Begotten, that's the idea, to be birthed out of the earth, out of the grave, so to speak, conquering sin and death, and to install him as king of kings and lord of lords, remember Psalm 2, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the coming crucifixion in which after three days Jesus would be resurrected, begotten out of the grave, and later ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he now reigns victorious. He is the one to whom everyone will give an account for all that he has done. Do not think that you will not answer to this one. God has installed his king upon Mount Zion, and we will give an account, every one of us. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus recounts God's faithfulness to Israel. We've seen that. But now in verses 9 and 10, he retraces his faithfulness in his own life. (coughs) Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. Christ speaking to his father. You have made me trust when upon my mother's breast, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It continued. God's plan had been fulfilled in Christ from his conception. God had been faithful from the womb even until this moment because God is faithful. Although Christ hung on the cross, abandoned by the Father, his trust in his Father was unshakable. He knew God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering, and so should we, because God is faithful. He is faithful to keep his promises, and he's always faithful to his people. We may be without faith at times, or faithless as the Bible calls it, but he is faithful. You may be here this morning and you may be suffering from the scorn of sinners. You may be treated unjustly for your Christian stance, for the gospel that declares all men guilty and in need of salvation, for the gospel that demands repentance, for the Messiah who is the only way to God. That's not love by the world. Maybe your scorn for your God-enabled, Christ-imputed righteous life Well, if that's the case, you're in good company, standing with God's anointed, standing firm with all the saints who stand with God's anointed and who have throughout time. And here's the verse that I've already referred to, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. Paul gives some encouraging words, words that we need every day, really. We need it this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to those in Thessalonica, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. See, the Lord is the one that protects us from our enemies. He protects us from Satan and all his deceptions. He protects us from the devil's servants, those who stand in opposition of God and scorn God and his children. He will empower you to stand firm against the devices, the schemes of the devil, as we've seen in 
Ephesians chapter 6, remember? Did you know that we're called and destined to suffering as believers? See, the Christian life, in one sense, is not your best life now. Uh, Certainly in, in another sense, because God is in us, it makes all the difference in the world. But this life is not easy. It wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. But you have been called destined. Listen to this. This comes right from Scripture. To complete Christ's afflictions. The word means affliction, persecution, tribulation. Listen to this. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We, Paul in this case, was seeking to fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. However, I will tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that Christ did not pay the full sin debt. It does not mean that we can add anything to his atonement. Remember the last words on the cross to Telestai, it is finished. You see, salvation had been accomplished that very moment for all who would ever believe. No, it doesn't mean that we add anything to the sufferings of Christ in that sense. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we're not going to look at it, but you can write it down. Philippians 4.18 gives us some insight. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture, it's clear that we cannot add anything to the work of Christ. Rather, we complete his afflictions in the sense of displaying and transmitting Christ's afflictions to the nations. It is through the persecution, affliction, tribulation of God's people that the complete work of Christ is put on display, that we transmit his saving work to the lost, bringing the light of the gospel to those in darkness. That's what it means, and it's clear, I will tell you, as you compare Scripture with Scripture. So take it all joy when you fall into persecution and troubles in this life. That is what we're called to, awaiting the redemption of the body, awaiting the glory that shall be revealed in us through Christ. In verses 11 through 18, Christ again cries out to God for help, and then he demonstrates or he really describes in great detail the events of the crucifixion. Verse, uh, Verse 11, he simply prays, Be not far from me. For my distress is near. It's right here. For there is none to help. Again, we see his trust in his father. He prays for closeness to his God. He looks to his father for help. And he has not given up on God's faithfulness. In the remainder of these verses... Notice the graphic description of the events that would occur a thousand years later with precise detail. Notice the graphic figures of speech employed to convey his suffering and the evils of the people that were all around him, those who mocked him, those who were in derision. Verses 12 and 13, many bulls have surrounded me Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. He likens the people to animals, first to bulls, but not just any bulls. These are strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan was the northernmost region of what is modern-day Turkey today. But where in that day the strongest bulls in the ancient world were bred and raised, these bulls were a special breed. They were huge, they were dangerous, and they were feared. Jesus describes the people around the cross like these strong, dangerous bulls of Bashan. He likens each of the mockers to furious bulls, ready to charge, ready to attack and gore him with their horns. That's the picture. In verse 13, he likens them also to roaring lions, ready to rip the flesh with their mouths. For his flesh had been ripped to shreds, and the mocking words were meant to rip his heart. They hated him. Many participated in the crucifixion with their lips. They promoted it. They gloried in the execution of this man upon a cross. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus describes his physical condition. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. He begins with my heart is poured out like water. All his strength had been poured out. It flowed from him like a drink offering poured out on the altar of God. The weight of all his sins, the sins of his, the weight of all the sins of his people were upon him. It was a crushing weight, a draining weight bearing the sins of the world. He said, my bones are out of joint. In other words, they're out of socket. And that causes excruciating pain. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. He was under great stress during crucifixion. Under the stress of crucifixion, the fluid would gather around the heart, the pericardium. And that, I believe, is what he's referring to. Remember when the soldier pierced his side? Blood and water came out. The water had gathered around his heart. Here it's as if his heart had melted from the intense stress and physical pain, yet he endured the cross, despising the shame. He did not quit. He did not give up. He did not give in. He was purchasing a people for the glory of God, a people for his namesake, even his own bride. He gave his life a ransom for many. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pod shear, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Jesus likens his strength to a broken piece of pottery baked in the fire till the last particle of moisture was driven out of the clay. His suffering was so great that his strength was gone. Spurgeon writes this, All his strength was dried up in the tremendous flames of avenging justice, even as the Paschal lamb was roasted in fire. What an analogy. Jesus also said, My tongue cleaves to my jaw, and you lay me in the dust of death. It speaks of dehydration. His thirst was intense. He cried out on the cross, I thirst. 
Yet he refused the wine mixed with gall to drink. He refused any relief from his sufferings. Folks, this was his sufferings. This was the plan of God decreed before the foundation of the world. He is the suffering servant of God, and he came to save his people from their sins. Are you his people? Verse 16, again, he employs a figure of speech to describe those gathered around the cross. For dogs have encircled me or surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet a thousand years Over a thousand years before this is fulfilled, they pierced my hands and my feet. Not only were these people like bulls and lions, they were like dogs, like an unclean animal, for they were unclean without the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Dogs is synonymous with the next phrase, the phrase in the next line, a band of evildoers, or literally from the Hebrew, a congregation of evil, those who wished to do him harm, those who promoted his crucifixion. They applauded it, so to speak. Notice what they've done. They pierced my hands and my feet, clearly prophesying the events recorded in the Gospels, describing a form of capital punishment that was yet to be invented. Actually, it would be hundreds of years before crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, or any kind, as far as I know, was invented. This is describing Roman execution, probably the most violent, brutal, barbaric, grotesque form of capital punishment known to man, ever known to man. The Romans used capital punishment to make a public example out of a criminal. They pierced his hands and his feet, yet Jesus himself was without sin. On the cross, he bore the sins of others, the crimes of others, his own people that he was purchasing, paying for their full sin debt. Verse 17, I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. He could count his bones so dehydrated that they were apparent through the skin. And many of his bones lay bare for all to see literally staring at him. He had been whipped so badly that his flesh had been torn away and his bones were staring at him, open for all to see. The flesh was gone. What a sight. The songwriter said, Sorry. Behold, the man upon a cross. I sin upon his shoulders. A shame I hear my mocking voice. See, we're with them. Call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. It is accomplished. He paid the sin debt for all who would cry out to him in faith and believe upon him. Then verse 18, they divided my garments among them. 
and for my clothing they cast lots. This is seen in all four Gospels, but quoted precisely in John 19, 24, where it says, John writes, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, speaking of his garment, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They didn't know it. They didn't know the scriptures, these Roman soldiers. But this was to fulfill the scripture. And he quotes verse 18 from Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, this was the game of executioners taking the last possession of a criminal and gambling it. After all, isn't this what a criminal deserves? A criminal has no rights. He has no rights to his possessions or even to determine where they go after he's gone. So they made a game out of gambling for his last possession, leaving him naked upon the cross, exposed. His shame was put on display. This reminds me of a part of a parable in particular in Luke chapter 15. Remember the man that had two sons? The younger of those sons asked for his inheritance. He took that inheritance and he went away to a far country and he wasted that inheritance on loose living, prodigal living, apparently with prostitutes. He lived it up and he spent all that he had so that he was left with nothing and a famine came. And he had to take a job with a Gentile farm, farmer feeding pigs, unclean animals, animals that Jews were forbidden to have any contact with. And he became so hungry that he longed for the, to eat the pods. And the pods, by the way, is a food for pigs, but... A human can't digest it. But he longed to eat the pods that he was feeding to the pigs. And verse 17 of that chapter says, But when he came to his senses, and thank God he came to his senses, he said this, How many of my father's hired men have, it, have more than enough bread? But I am here dying with hunger. He was starving. Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, so he contemplates. This is what I'm going to He contemplates what he's going to do. He's going back home, and this is what I'll say to my father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no, wor no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You see, this is the attitude of a repentant man of one that is sorry for his sins and realizes his helpless condition. A man that realizes he has no hope apart from God himself and his mercy. But in the next verses, we see the heart of God in his father as he comes home in repentance. Verse 20 says, So he got up and came to his father 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This is significant. And he felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. While the son was a long ways off, still apparently outside the village, a long way off, the father happened to see him. And he felt compassion, and he ran to meet him and embrace him and kiss him. Now, this is not apparent from just reading the story. But a grown man did not run in Jewish culture. It was a shame to bare your ankles, and that's what you did when you ran. But this father was not worried about his own shame, but ran to meet his son outside the village and to come receive him back and basically escort him home taking the shame, because he would have been shamed. He would have been looked down on by the people, for they knew what he had done. The father received him. He met him a long ways off. The father bore the shame. He embraced him and kissed him. But there was more. The father called his servants. He started to re he started to say what he had rehearsed, and the father stopped him, and he had his servants bring the best robe. This was the robe reserved for the guest of honor. That's the robe is talking about. And put a ring on his finger. What was so significant about the ring? It was a signet ring that enabled him to transact business in his father's name and put shoes on his feet. You see, the son came home just seeking to be a slave, a servant. But servants don't wear shoes. Sons do. The father received him as a son. This is the heart of God towards those who come to him in faith. What a beautiful portrayal of God who is ready to forgive the repentant. But the gospel message goes further, doesn't it? God the Father sent his son to take the punishment for our sins so that a just God can justly forgive our sins and receive us as his dear children. The Father in heaven can receive us back home. He runs and takes the shame in a sense and receives us as his sons, as his children. Because his son, the only son of God, the, only, the son of God, I should say, is the propitiation, the satisfying substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Folks, it is finished. He satisfied God's demand for the punishment of sin. The curse of God was placed upon him that our curse would be removed in Christ. He was condemned that we might no longer be condemned to eternal judgment. He took our shame that our shame might be removed. He suffered, bled, and died on the cross. He died a death that's unthinkable. We can't even contemplate 
what he endured. He was separated from his father, probably the greatest suffering of all. He died and was buried and he rose again that we might be justified, that we might be declared righteous by the God of heaven and have peace with him. Would you this morning, if you have never been brought to repentance, if you've never trusted in Christ, would you this morning, in light of the glorious gospel, in light of the truth that it is finished, would you repent and look to Christ in faith? Would you look away from the world, look away from your sin, look away from your so-called righteousness, anything that you're trusting in, and look to Christ alone? He is the only way that you can be saved. It is through Christ and Christ alone. You see, I would suggest to you this morning that he is enough. Salvation has been accomplished. Sins have been paid for. For all who would ever believe, it is finished. To Telestai, it is finished. Now all who believe in Christ are forgiven. The guilt is removed and we're brought into an intimate relationship with God. The past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you come to Christ in faith, it has been paid for by the blood of Christ. It is finished. The songwriter beautifully wrote, I need no argument. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is he enough for you? Is he enough? He is enough, folks. He is enough, my friend. Jesus is enough. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that Jesus took our place, that his death is sufficient, that he's enough, that we are trusting in his person and his work alone, that our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ alone. We're celebrating this morning that it is finished. That's it. And that he is enough. That's the gospel. Look to him in faith. Trust in him. He will save you from your sins and change your life. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new want to so that you no longer want to live in sin. You no longer want to follow after this world system, the course of this world. He'll give you a heart that he'll give you a heart to where your greatest desire is to please him and to walk with him. Remember the Lord's death this morning. We celebrate according to the scripture with two elements. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken through which we enter into God's presence without guilt without sin because Jesus took our sins. We enter into his presence. We come boldly before his presence as his own children, children of the God of heaven. And he dresses us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is an imputed Righteousness. It is placed upon our account. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But Christ earned it because it is finished. The wine represents the blood of Christ that washes away all sin. The bitterness of wine I see in Scripture represents justice and wrath sometimes. The sweetness of wine represents 
abundant blessings in other places. So I would suggest this. The wine pictures that Jesus Christ took God's full wrath that we might have his abundant blessings. For you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus.